0: Um, The barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations. A lot of these were sponsored by the church.
2: What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? um, You're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects.
0: Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, your podcast host, and also the new lead singer. For Squad (laughs) 5-0.
1: I'm Dean Detloff, your other podcast host, and I'm the backup singer for Squad 5-0, recently deposed in a very brutal coup.
0: I don't remember, but I think Squad 5-0 is problematic for some reason. I can't actually recall, though.
1: (laughs) I'm not going to Google it, that's for sure.
0: No, absolutely not. I would never. (laughs)
1: Uh, Well, this week you're in luck because we're not talking about Squad 5-0. We're talking to Micah Herskind. A really, really fantastic uh writer and an Atlanta-based organizer and one of the ten co-creators of the Eight to Abolition campaign. Uh which if you have not heard about, boy are you about to hear a lot about it.
0: <laughs> it's uh You've heard about Eight Can't Wait, but now get ready for the real one. Eight to Abolition. <laughs> don't right. don't even worry about the other the other stuff. Eight to Abolition is the real deal.
1: Yeah, yeah. Can't wait to hear about eight to abolition. Uh, it's really good stuff. Um, it's a, a nice campaign, uh, around abolishing prisons and police and it's all in a digestible format. That's great for your youth group. And, uh, you know, all the folks that you like to hang out with. Anyway, uh, Micah also does a lot of really great uh, writing on his own, um, especially at a Medium blog at medium.com slash at Micah Herskind. Um, you can find writing on abolition and a whole host of other things there that are great, um, including some really good resources and uh, kind of framing devices and things like that around abolition. So I encourage you to check that out. All right, let's go to Micah. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Micah. We want to talk about the current conversations going on uh, regarding police abolition and some of the work that you've been doing, the writing that you do, the resources you've gathered. Uh, For people who don't know, Micah does a really fantastic job just pulling together lots of uh, different links and books and interviews and that sort of thing to get people on the path to abolition. Uh, But before we get that far, could you do some introducing of yourself and also introduce us a little bit to the 8 to Abolition campaign? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I am from Buffalo, New York, and I
2: live in Atlanta currently, where um, I organize and I write a little bit. And um, like you mentioned, I try to sort of curate some resources. Um, And most recently, have been working on the 8 to Abolition campaign. And so I am um, just one of a team of 10 really incredible people um, who came together in response to the 8 Can't Wait campaign. and so we're um, sort of, we're, we're geographically dispersed, um, loose formation of abolitionists with a wide range of identities and experiences. And we all sort of came together in the wake of um, the Eight Can't Wait campaign to try to sort of provide um, an abolitionist um, alternative or, or, or help, help people to envision um, what steps toward abolition rather than continual reform might look like.
0: Cool. Well, uh, we usually start our conversations off by asking people to give like an elevator pitch for what they're thinking about. And uh, sometimes when people come on the show and they've written a book or whatever, you know, that's easy. They're kind of explaining their book and that's fine. Um, but when it comes to abolition, it might be kind of tricky because <laughs> it's uh, maybe more complicated than uh, just pitching a book or something. But uh, if this were a particularly high building with a very slow elevator, uh, how would you pitch, uh, you know, like what abolition is and what eight to abolition is about?
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we would definitely need a very, a very slow elevator. Um, so, I think I would, I would pitch hate to abolition in the same way that I would pitch abolition in the first place, um, which is to say, first that abolition um, the abolitionist movement is a decades old one um, that has been founded and led and pioneered by um, black feminist thinkers and writers and organizers Um, and so it's sort of there's this really um, deep tradition and um, deep lineage of ideas Um, and so the way the way that i would think about pitching abolition is i always go um, to ruth wilson gilmore who talks about abolition as presence Um, and so the sort of the way that I understand abolition is sort of a dual pronged project of not only tearing down institutions that criminalize people um, and make people sick and put people in cages and shorten people's lifespans, um, but also the building up of institutions that allow people to thrive and to be safe and to respond to harm well when it happens and to find healing and to be accountable um, to ourselves and to each other. And so. Um, that's sort of, that's sort of the big picture understanding of of abolition. Um, and, I, and I, I think to add on to that it's it's also about saying that what we have right now is not keeping people safe um this This system of police and prisons that we have right now is actually actively endangering and shortening the lives of most people and especially of black and queer and trans and poor people, and especially those who sit at the intersection of multiple of those identities um and so it's it's really about sort of seeing our systems for what they are um, and imagining and um, building together what alternative systems
1: might look like that's great um, what a great elevator ride indeed <laughs> um, you did a great job uh, don't worry about that well maybe tell us a bit about eight to abolition as a response to the eight can't wait campaign you mentioned that uh, earlier um, and it's also kind of a it seems like more broadly a response to reformist demands about police in general could you explain the difference between those approaches what's wrong with reform what's wrong with the eight can't wait campaign such that you'd have to create something different yeah um,
2: so the eight can't wait campaign came out a couple weeks ago. Um, it's a campaign from Campaign Zero, and it was sort of um, what I understand is sort of the the reformist response to the moment and the uprisings. And it had a lot of um, sort of procedural reforms, um, very minor reforms, many many reforms that have already been implemented in a lot of places. Um, so so things that are lacking in sort of a, a tactical or strategic framework in what could actually move us towards less violence, um, but also things that are lacking in um, sort of a moral sense. So the 8 Can't Wait campaign envisions 72% less police shootings. And <laughs> I think abolitionists say, like, if we're going to take the time to imagine a better system, like, why not actually imagine what we want and build towards that, which is 100% fewer police shootings. Um, and so, and, and then including specific demands like warn someone before shooting you know what what people are in the streets saying and what abolitionists have been saying for decades is like actually we don't want police shooting people we like we we actually just want shootings to stop not to have a better warning before shootings and so that's sort of that, that's sort of what what sparked a lot of this and there was um sort of immediate pushback from abolitionists to eight can't wait um and and that's when this group came together to make this response. Um, I think that the the difference between reform and abolition, um, I think the answer there really has to start with seeing reform for what it is. And this is something that Angela Davis gets into in um, Our Prisons Obsolete, is that ref- like the, the problem is thinking of reform as something different than what we've been doing for the entire history of the prison. And so right now people are saying like, well, why you know, why do we need to abolish the system? Why can't we just reform it? As if that's like a new thing. But what but what Davis points out, what a lot of other people point out, is that the first prison was a reform and we've actually been reforming prisons and punishment for a long time, for centuries. Um and and this is where we get into like how did we actually end up with the system that we have now? And I think there are there are narratives out there that say you know, Republicans had too much power in the '70s and '80s, and that's that's why we have mass incarceration. Um, and I think abolitionists understand that mass incarceration and mass criminalization have actually has actually always been sort of a bipartisan affair, and it's been both Democrats and Republicans for a long time. Um, I guess to get more specifically to the question, also is this is something um rachel herzing and and a lot of others point out is that sort of the the core difference between reform and abolition is reform says that we can fix the system whereas abolition says the system is not broken it's it's working as designed um it 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 was and is designed to control poor and black people um and to you know ma- maintain existing power hierarchies of white supremacy right white supremacy and patriarchy um, and and racial capitalism and so understanding that sort of seeking to fix the system has is something that's actually been tried and failed for many many decades and that what we actually need is a different approach and so to, but but to get into what abolitionists are really asking for concretely the way, the way that i understand it is sort of a, a continual process of taking resources away from police and prisons through um, non-reformist reform, something that Ruth Wilson Gilmore has spent a lot of time explaining, basically um, changes to the system that decrease the power, authority, resources, or tools um, of violent systems that actually reduce the capacity of violent systems to harm people and then redirect those resources into institutions that allow people to live well. Um, And so I hope that that gets at some of the differences between reform and abolition.
0: Yeah, it totally does. Um, but but maybe before we move on, could you just like, um, I, you don't need to do it exhaustively or anything like that, but maybe could you just tell us what a, a few of like the the central ideas like, it, like about eight, eight abolition, maybe just run down the eight for us?
2: Yeah, so the way that we thought about it as we were going about this um, was that we really did want to first draw on, um, again, demand. And campaigns that have been made for decades by abolitionist organizers, um, and what we what we really wanted to capture was not only sort of um, the the tearing down element of abolition, but also the building up. And so, sort of half of the demands um, are focused more on you know how do we actually how do we actually um, how do we get rid of these these harmful institutions? And so um, we talk about defunding the police and demilitarizing communities. Um, we we talk about the importance of removing police from schools um, as sort of a, a major source of how especially um, young Black children end up um, in the prison and in punishment institutions. Um, we talk about the need to actually free people from jails and prisons um, and to begin the, the long work of actually decriminalizing things. Um, and so we we explicitly mentioned decriminalizing um, misdemeanors because they account for 80% of total court dockets. Um, but we're also very clear about, we're actually, we, we wanna be on the road to decri- like to full decriminalization. We don't want criminalization to be the way in which we respond to harm. And, and that, that sort of leads into the fifth one, which is repealing laws that criminalize survival. So people in um, the sex trade and the drug trade and street economies, um, sort of re- removing all things that criminalize people who are trying to live. Um, and then then sort of the second half is actually beginning to envision what are the things that people need to be well and to thrive. And so um, we talk about investing in community self-governance. So thinking about how can we actually um, begin to empower communities to decide for themselves what they need and make sure that all of the needs of community members are taken. Um, how can we as communities Reimagine what safety looks like and what actually allows people to feel safe. Um, we talk about the need for safe housing, safe and accessible housing for everyone. Um I mean, co- Covid alone has shown um, just how just how many people are sort of living on the edge of disaster, how many people are, as Miriam Kava says, you know, a couple paychecks away from complete ruin. And so um, thinking about housing as sort of, you, housing for everyone, regardless of any circumstances as sort of a key um a key tenet and then also thinking about um the need to actually support reparations and land back to um to indigenous communities um to black communities um and then the last one is sort of a a a, a wide ranging um a wide-ranging look at how we can invest in care and not cops. And so, how do we strengthen health infrastructure? Um, how do we invest more in teachers and counselors and universal child care and support for all different kinds of family structures? Um, how do we make sure that everyone is able to get where they need to be through free and extensive public transit? Uh, make sure that everyone is fed. So just really trying to um, provide pathways into um into what abolition could look like as not, not only defunding the police and defunding prisons, but also building up life-affirming institutions. Um, and if I could just add one more thing about the way we were thinking about this, um, is we really tried to tailor it to what demands could be made at the local level. And so I think that people are realizing now more than ever, as people start to look into um, their city police budgets, that so so much of what's happening right now is happening at the city level. We have police forces that are are at the city level, and most controlled by Democrats. And so trying to give people a lot of different pathways into where they can begin organizing in their own cities, um, or municipalities, and how they can um, join groups that are already doing this work is something that we really tried to try to do with with the platform.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a good platform. I appreciate you kind of going through each piece for us. Um, what what always strikes me about abolition is how, like, comprehensive of a, of like a, put like a political project it is. You know, it's not just about uh, you know, police or prisons, but it's about the you know transformation of the entire society um, away from carcerality. And I think it's so important and so cool to kind of see you all formulate in this way. Um, well, I, I mean, on those on those points, um, it, it's kind of wild, I guess, just to think that a few weeks ago, police abolition seemed like, I mean, a pretty far off goal, <laughs> or or, you know, like a really niche sort of project I don't, I don't want to like cast aspersions on anyone to say it's, and, and minimize it i'm just saying it's like you know it wasn't in the spotlight <laughs> but due to the work of a ton of activists like yourself and the other folks that are a part of eight to abolition um it's an idea that's really been like catapulted to the spotlight you know it was in the new york times and and elsewhere um it's just part of like the it's part of the discourse and that's all i'm trying to say <laughs> but um part of that process has also shown that people have some really um, wrong ideas about abolition and, uh, you know, e- either purposely or not. So could you parse out some of the like the common mistakes and misconceptions that folks have about police abolition or prison abolition or just abolition in general? Like, um, what what's a misunderstanding that you feel like comes up a lot uh, in conversations regarding abolition?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it's been really, it's been really wild to see in a matter of weeks, suddenly, like, these national conversations are happening about abolition um and yeah I, I mean i think first what you what you uplifted is like you know this this is the the fact that this can be a national conversation and this can be in the spotlight is the result of you know years and years of organizing and theorizing by abolitionists especially you know groups like critical resistance like one one of sort of the 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 biggest um, and sort of foundational abolitionist organizers. All all of all of the organizing that happened in the wake of Ferguson, I think, has sort of um, begun to sort of build up the the cultural and theoretical um, and institutional infrastructure for for abolition conversations to really um, take off. I think that's something that is really frustrating to me as someone who has been in this. Sort of movement or or in these conversations for only like four years or so so i'm sure something that is like far more frustrating to people who have been doing this for decades mm-hmm. is as it's as it's come into the mainstream you know there there's this immediate watering down um i think some intentional some unintentional i think a lot of it is the result of people who themselves want to be in the spotlight and so even though they have you know never thought about abolition before this moment suddenly they're writing long threads on Twitter explaining to people what it is, or we have, you know, pundits going on TV and saying what abolition is when, you know, it's it's immediately clear that they haven't, you know, read any of the foundational thinkers on it. Um, and so, yeah, that has been really frustrating. Um, I think that one of one of the biggest misunderstandings I'm seeing in a lot of these um, in a lot of these attempts to say well you know everyone's confused and so here's what abolition always is is or here's what abolition is um, is people are saying things like okay abolition says we need to get rid of um, the police as we know them and prisons as we know them and so um, you know it's 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 about you know defunding what we currently have and then building up building up a system you know a new system of with a, with a new police force in its place, police that are better trained and, you know, better at their jobs, and we're going to totally dismantle the quote unquote, culture of policing. Um, but I think what's important to understand about those those calls is that at their core, there's still calls that are asking for a fix. And so again, this gets back to like the the difference between reform and abolition, which is reform is trying to fix a system, and abolition is saying it isn't broken. And so, I think it's true that saying we need to dismantle and then rebuild police forces, it's certainly a bigger fix than reformers has have asked for before, but it's still, it's still a fix. It's still the idea that you know policing is something at its root that is good and that is gonna keep people safe. And so what really matters is that it just needs to be done well. Um whereas that is that is not that is not what abolition is saying. That's not what abolitionists are working towards they're working for um a world where there's no perceived need for the police and and they see the police for what they are which are sort of agents of social control backed by the threat of violence all the time and so um i think that that that's one of the biggest misunderstandings that that i've seen um i think another thing that has just come up for people is i think it can be jarring to hear the word abolition um and a lot of people sort of immediately say, "Okay, well, how will we be safe? You know, what about murder? What about sexual assault, and sexual violence?" And so you immediately so that then then enter another under misunderstanding where people are saying, "Oh, well, you know, the police are." just going to be for um, violent crimes or or things that are actually harmful you know we're still going to need people to to respond to these we're still going to need a small police force to respond to these things but you know we're just not trying to have police for the things that they aren't needed for anymore um and again this is however well or malintended um this is again sort of ignorant of what abolitionists have pointed out for a long time which is that police and prisons are actually sources of a lot of of death and sexual violence um, and so so think so thinking that these these institutions that actually shorten lives all the time might be reconfigured to now save lives again abolitionists say that's not what they're designed to do so stop trying to make them do that um yeah th- those are some of the main things that i've seen
1: that's great. Uh, I appreciate you um, articulating some of that misunderstanding. You can tell the, uh, the frustration behind it, uh, which is uh, a good thing to hear anyway. Um, I think you've laid out the difference, at least, uh, with what abolitionists are after. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit in the conversation, but not completely, um, just maybe switching focus to talk a bit about the connection between abolition and your approach to it, and also your your Christianity or your faith, which you've done some writing about. Um, so you're a Christian, we, we studied together, Recently in a class at the Institute for Christian Studies on Christianity and prison abolition. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how your faith is related to your abolition work? That's kind of like an emerging conversation that I guess I'm really interested in, in hearing more about. Yeah, I know I should be calling you professor. Um <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> um
2: you might have to edit that out. <laughs> no, so <laughs> I think um, yeah, I mean this is some this is something that I've been really trying to push into recently as well and something that your class really helped me begin to parse through and um, projects like Christians for Abolition by Hannah Bowman have really helped me start to process um, I think that my faith is sort of a source of a lot of sort of my my work and my convictions and what what propels me to um to do whatever it is that I do, um, and you know, especially connecting to um, liberation theology and the the idea that sort of this there's this preferential treatment for the oppressed. Um, that that's all been a really significant part of sort of my my journey within Christianity, um, and sort of my my journey back to Christianity after having a lot of baggage with um, sort of the the relatively conservative evangelical Christianity um, that I grew up with um and so so i i've always sort of seen my faith as sort of a source of um of what i think and what i do um but something that i've been learning about and that i'm you know through your class through my own reading um and something that i'm excited to continue thinking about is sort of the the theology of abolition and how sort of abolition is actually um At the core of theology, and I've um, of of what I think Christian theology should be, Um, I've come to think of Jesus as an abolitionist, um, someone who did who sort of did this proactive world building work, and who who called out harmful institutions and behaviors, and sought transformation in a lot of ways. And I think um, sort of seeks transformation for all of us, not only individually, but also as a society. And so. more recently, I've been connecting to sort of, um, yeah, sort of the the theology of abolition.
0: Cool. Well, let's let's uh, keep on that Christian train of questions for a second. Um, yeah, you wrote a really cool article uh, or an essay for Christians for Abolition called "The Individualizing Paternalism of Big Christian Prison Ministry." Um, it's a cool article and uh, it's a helpful look at Chuck Colson uh, and like the Prison Fellowship that he's behind. Um, and and the way that Christians, well, the way that certain Christians, not all of us, are a lot more concerned with like converting people in prison than they are, uh, than than like working to create a world that doesn't put people in prison at all. Um, so, what's some of the Christian logic that goes into that kind of thinking? The you know the conversion but not changing the world type of thinking. What kind of like Christian roadblocks stop people from getting into abolition? Do you think?
2: I I think where we where we see it most is sort of sort of the. The American Christianity that has been completely warped by sort of capitalism and the intense individualization of um, every element of our lives, including um, sort of the individualization of faith and the the idea that sort of the the pinnacle of of the Christian faith is a personal relationship with God and in individual salvation um that sort of comes at a later time. Um, and so I think I think that we see that especially clearly in, in the work of organizations like Prison Fellowship. Um, and um, Tanya Erzin has written a really good book about this. And um, Josh Dubler and Vincent Lloyd have also written really um written the book about this. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's exactly sort of how you opened is that prison sort of these Christian prison ministries are often relatively conservative in their theology and they're really about sort of prioritizing interchange of hearts and minds over broader change of um, the systems that actually <laughs> keep people oppressed. And so to me to me it feels in direct contradiction <laughs> to what to what Jesus would want. Um, and and it comes from this sort of intensely individualizing view of of harm or crime um which basically says that you know the the reason people do harmful things is because they are personally flawed and in need of god and so if we can just convert them to christianity then we can stop them from doing these bad things and so that that's why then the the quote-unquote christian approach is to go and say well let's you know let's connect this person to God and get them a personal relationship with God, and then they're not going to be a criminal anymore. Um, and, and so so to me, it it really does stem from just the um the hyper-individualization of faith and and of harm. Um, it, it, it completely eclipses systemic harm or, you know, in in Christian language, systemic sin. Um, and, and the fact that we we live in a country Um, that has millions and millions of poor people and where black communities don't have clean drinking water and where we invest billions more in white schools than in black schools. And so, uh, you know, it's both mind boggling and completely sort of in, in line with what we would expect from sort of conservative Christian evangelism um, that we might say, well, actually the core problem here is that you haven't prayed enough, so we're going to get you to pray, and then that's going to solve the problem.
1: Thanks, Micah. That's a really great uh, look at how evangelicals think about prisons, and the whole essay is definitely worth everybody's time, I think. I want to maybe key in on something that you were just talking about with respect to understanding uh, social sin or, or seeing systems as um, being sinful, uh, just because that's kind of like an interesting way of, of talking about these issues, especially for Christians. Um, you know, you mentioned looking for ways of talking about liberation theology, and, and that's the kind of thing that gets us excited on this podcast most of the time. Um, and I wonder if you might maybe walk us through a bit more about how Christians might uh, confront the way that conservative Christians or other kinds of Christians, you know, liberal ones to uh, have kind of lent their theologies to incarceration. Like um, what kind of tools do you think that Christians have to uh, reevaluate our own um, theological traditions or, or find energizing principles or, or however you want to put it to kind of undo that work?
2: I mean, I guess for me is I, I, I think of, you know, Jesus was someone who was, in the community and connected to the community. and we we talk about how, you know, Jesus, like you know even even growing up in in a conservative Christian church, we talked about how, you know, jesus, um Jesus always, you know, was was eating with poor people and with those who society viewed as sinners um, and those who were outcasts. and in in Sunday school, we sang the song upside down and all about how, You know jesus came to turn the world upside down and so i actually think it's already in a lot of the language that that even even more conservative christianity professes um and so i think it's in part actually just about like keying into that and saying like are we just going to say these words or are we really going to think about how they they apply to our world um and so you know Jesus came to turn the world upside down. Like what's more upside down than abolition? Um, and and then I think the other thing, the other the other tactic is actually just like, you know, again, Jesus was in the community. Jesus was with the most harmed. And so like, let's actually go to the most harmed and see what is the problem here. Like, and that's when we get into conversations that I think abolitionists have made really clear, which is like, I think, you know, so so police murders right now are getting, so are are very publicized and they're in the news. Um, but I think also what we need to do is actually, and this is something that I have learned from Naomi Murakawa, is we actually need to go to like the typical interaction between police and people, which is like a misdemeanor arrest, and um think about what that actually looks like for people and how that harms people and recognizing that police make 10 to 12 million arrests per year, which is 10 to 12 million times a year where people are kidnapped out of their communities and taken to cages, where then a loved one will probably have to pay ransom in order to get them out. And so I think I think the other thing that, something that I found helpful in talking to my own loved ones is sort of just trying to, to show these divides between what is it that we're professing in either like the worship songs that we're singing during the week or the verses that we're quoting or what it is we're saying and like the actual reality of what is going on and what these, what these systems that we've built up are really doing.
0: I really appreciate you putting it that way. I feel like that's um, pretty analogous to to the way I got where I'm at too, right? Like evangelicalism just tells us all these like absolutely wacky things. And then when we start taking them very seriously, we get in trouble with them. And that seems it seems unfair, but that's that's how it goes.
2: Exactly. Yeah, no, I mean, I feel like I'm probably at a point in my life where I'm like most living into a lot of the lessons that I grew up with, which is, I mean, I have a long way to go and will always have a long way to go. But like, if ever there was a time in my life where I feel like I might be aligning with some of the things that I was taught as a kid, it's now. And yet now is the time when I'm getting the biggest pushback from Christians in my life about, you know, how this is going too far, or, you know, this is, you know, this is not what it should be. And it, you know, it, yeah, it just is like, well, should you know, do we want to internalize these lessons or not? Because we can't just keep saying them if we're not going to live them out.
1: Yeah, that's great. um And good to keep people reflecting on their own commitments you know things that they already believe that hopefully you can kind of expand on a little bit um maybe that's a helpful way in we'll see we'll find out in in sunday schools um well uh maybe i could ask you to talk a little bit more we've been talking about prisons a lot um but i want to bring us back to police uh you know there's a lot of literature out there on abolition and christians talking about abolition um is kind of increasing but it seems like there's less christian engagement with the idea of police abolition in particular uh, do you think there are maybe like natural ways that Christians can connect those dots? Are there Christians that you know of that are already doing it? You know, how are you doing it yourself? Um, you know, maybe maybe bringing in the Christian specificity isn't like the most important thing. But if it gets you somewhere, um, that might be worth kind of uh, bringing up, I guess, for, for folks who are tr- struggling to make those connections.
2: I think I just, I just come back to like, what is the Christian vision for the world? And like, we talk about the kingdom of heaven and like, bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth and like it's funny when people say it's it's funny to me especially when Christians say that abolition is you know too utopic of a vision (laughs) when like aren't isn't that what we're supposed to be doing like aren't we talking (laughs) about heaven and like what the kingdom of heaven looks like and how you know I mean there are a lot of different theologies on what you know what what being in the now looks like um (laughs) <laughs> but but it, but it is always funny to me when when we talk about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of heaven coming to earth, and then like we're not willing to imagine like a world without police or prisons. Like this is again just a case of like which is it? You know can, can we can we build towards and hope for a better world or not? Um, and so you know I think a, a question that could that could be asked is like will there be police in the kingdom of heaven? Like, will there be people walking around with guns who, you know, can kill you at a moment's notice in the kingdom of heaven? And, you know, which is not to say that human action is going to get us there. But like, if we can envision what that might look like, then like, why not try to take some steps that might get us closer?
0: I like that a lot. Yeah, it's good. (laughs) For, For folks who are, I mean, like, you know, people are kind of very motivated by abolition right now. Like, this is like, you know, everyone's talking about it. Everyone's excited about it. And that's good. <laughs> but for folks who are looking for more like who are some abolitionists who started you on the path? Uh, who are you reading now uh, to deepen your understanding of abolition? Uh, what's what's on the required reading list?
2: Well, the required reading list definitely starts with Angela Davis. Um, of course, I think Our Prison's Obsolete, and then so much of her other work, including um, Abolition, Democracy, and Freedom is a Constant Struggle, so many of the interviews that she's done. um, I think that she's she's absolutely one of the places that it starts. Um, Thinkers like an organizer like Ruth Wilson Gilmore is um, another one who's just sort of been a major a major pioneer of this movement um, and who has connected a lot of the dots for people in terms of how we actually got to this moment um and who i think especially has written really powerfully about some of the flaws of reform and some of the pitfalls of reform and specifically thinking about sort of um innocence as a precondition for humanity um you know so focusing on people who we can identify as you know, innocent in some for in some way, whether because they're legally innocent and wrongfully convicted, or because they were a kid who was convicted, or because they were too harshly sentenced, or that kind of thing. So I think that Ruth Wilson Gilmore's there. Um, Naomi Murakawa's book, um, *The First Civil Right: How Liberals Built P- Prison America*, was, I think, one of my first and biggest entry points into sort of that that changed me from sort of a reformer to an abolitionist. Um, what once I was able to see that reform is not only not the solution, but actually has been the problem, Um, that was one of the things that really allowed me to come to abolition. Um, And so, yeah, those, I think, were some of my biggest entry points. Um, What I'm reading right now um, is, well, so so some of the things I'm reading right now are um, Joanna Fernandez's The Young Lords. Um, I'm reading, I'm, I'm trying to focus on sort of what have what have what has movement history looked like and like what has been the actual like organization and tactics and strategies of groups. So something that I've just been thinking about a lot lately is like I think even even you know a year ago for me a lot of this was theoretical, um, which is problematic because abolition is not theoretical. It's really practical. And so trying to think about like Who's who's doing the work and where and like how can you actually be doing the work in your own city or town and your own with your own local police force and your own local jail um, has been something that I've really been trying to push into lately and so yeah the Young Lords um, and I'm also reading Uses of a Whirlwind which is actually from several years ago but is also um, sort of a really good a good collection of um, sort of movement history and movement analysis and strategy. Um, And then I also just started um, As Black as Resistance, um, which is sort of a look at Black anarchism, um, and that's been really amazing as
1: well. Um, Yeah. Thanks. That is a lot of very good stuff uh, to be reading, for sure. Um, Reading very slowly, to be be clear. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, there's a lot going on right now. I don't know if you've heard, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that makes sense. Um, yeah, I'm, I'll be interested to see uh, what you learn from all that anyway. So keep in touch about that. Um, speaking of uh, organizing and, you know, getting involved in taking things out of theory, how can people get involved with the 8 to Abolition campaign? And how do you suggest people might connect with uh, abolition, maybe locally? Any kind of tips for people trying to think that part through?
2: So so in terms of aid to abolition, I mean, the way that we really envision it is as a tool for local organizers and as something that people can lean into to, to see some of the entry points into like what, what local abolitionist organizing has can look like. Um, and there's this amazing report that just came out um, from Interrupting Criminalization, which is also a really good um, sort of really practical guide to what defunding and abolishing the police could look like. Um, and so that that's sort of our hope for it. And something that um some of my comrades have really driven home for me and um that I've sort of learned the importance of is just tapping into the local work like there's there's almost certainly work happening where people are and so actually finding out finding out you know who's organizing and where where is the black led organizing um in your city and then seeing how you can support that monetarily but then also also by um, attending meetings and, you know, lend, lending support and beginning to sort of co-struggle with people um, in, in a lot of different ways. And so I, I think that the best thing people can do um, is, like, start to find out, and this this is something that Devin Springer was tweeting about the other day, is, like, find out, like, literally, where is your local jail? And, like, what is your city's police budget and like what we, you know, go through, go through the line items and begin to understand that and then organize with people around how that could be changed.
1: Thanks. That's great. Uh, and I think hopefully anyway, that gives people a lot of different ways of finding out what, what, uh, they can do to connect in their local spot. Um, we really appreciate you coming on the show, Micah. Like I said, there is a lot going on, especially for you. I know there's kind of a lot going on. So we're really grateful that you took the time to lend us your, brain and your thoughts and your experience uh and especially your time. Um we look forward to seeing where eight to abolition goes. Yeah,
2: thank you guys so much for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Uh you can also leave us an iTunes review. We'd always appreciate that. Um yeah and also you should go to eight to and see what, what these eight very good things are all about. It's uh it's a good one. So uh go check it out there. You can see some of their, uh, they have like a digital toolkit too if you uh, want to share about it on your Twitter account or Facebook or whatever. So, all kinds of good resources there to get involved. Um, cool the intro music is by Amari Armstrong and the outro music is church by Theological the spoonons. We'll in see the it next morning, week. souls alive Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church for we'll me down by the riverside They will swim with all creation never get tired never bored don't worry someday there'll be no damn between us and our Lord Jackson keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late in Jackson, you keep your hoods up, where well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind the cold nights, but we might mind.